So it's important that we understand that meditation, what we're doing here, is the work of the mind. We're not training to be good breathers or slow walkers. There's no career path in either of those that I know of. But we use these experiences of the moment, of the body, of the breath, other sensations. We use the awareness of those to develop mindfulness, sati, which is a mental factor, a factor of the mind. Asayada Utejaniya says, objects do not meditate. It is the mind that meditates. That is why meditation is called mind work, and that's why you need to know about the mind. And both know in the sense of hearing and understanding, learning about the way the mind works in general, but turning your attention to your own mind and understanding how it works. But what's interesting in this practice, unlike the Olympics, you know, which we just had, and that, that um, explosion of athletic ability that many people watched, it's kind of amazing what people, what people can do if they train the body in, in those ways. We often say if we put enough effort, as much effort into our meditation practices, those athletes do to their training, we'd all be enlightened by now. Uh, it's amazing. But there they're training the body. Of course, they use the mind, but they're usually training some athletic skill. Here our training is to train the mind itself. So not the body to these great feats of athleticism or to walk as the slowest that anyone has ever walked, but to be able to just sit still, to be relaxed and comfortable and attentive to bring mindfulness to the various activities and movements of the day. That's what we're doing. And it's hard to do, right? Even just the sitting still comfortably, it's really hard to do. The body complains very quickly about that. But what's even more interesting about what we're doing here is we're using the mind to train the mind. And if you look at What's happening in that is we're using a very imperfect tool to do the training, right? You don't come in here with a finely tuned and honed mind. It's like, great, let's turn that into towards meditation. It's kind of a crazy mind a lot of the time, right? Restless and confused and agitated, monkey mind. So it's an imperfect tool that we're using to do this training. And so it's important to remember we need to bring a lot of patience and kindness to this work because of the conditions in which we're doing it, a lot of forgiveness. And that judgment, being harsh or striving, really putting a lot of unbalanced effort is not productive, really isn't productive. But the benefits of this kind of training are huge. You mightn't get any serial endorsements out of it. You know, it's not going to be your ticket to riches in the material world. But the benefits are possibly immeasurable. Because as the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. And he also said something like, and I'm paraphrasing, the trained mind is better for you than your best friend the untrained mind worse for you than your worst enemy. 
So this training of the mind is so important. And it's a training so we learn how to live, not just to be good meditators. That's not what it's about. It's about how we live our lives and the freedom, the capacity of this heart and mind. And where we live is in this human realm. In Buddhism, this human realm is called samsara. Some of you may know that term. It's the, it points to this human realm, this realm, it includes the animals, but this, particularly this human realm, with its cycles of birth, old age, sickness, and death. And in the Buddhist cosmology, repeat, birth, old age, sickness, death, endless rounds it's considered to be. And that cycle of birth, old age, sickness, death is the long hand, is the ex, uh, is what the Buddha called dukkha or suffering. Because there is suffering. It's the first noble truth. There is suffering in this realm, in being born into this realm as a human or an animal. What's interesting about the human realm is it's considered to be the perfect blend for the potential for awakening, the right mix of pleasure and pain. There's, a, there's enough pleasantness that we can develop the wholesome states of mind uh, that are so necessary, but there's enough motivation in the suffering that we're inspired to keep practicing. So the human realm is considered to be the best realm to get enlightened in. But it is samsara. It has this relentless nature to it, these cycles of of pain and sorrow. A definition I've heard attributed to Tibetan teachers is that samsara is imperfect and unfixable. And it's unfixable because of the truth of the three characteristics, these three marks of existence. It's um, anicca, it's always changing, it's unreliable, unsatisfactory, and we're not in control in the way we think we are. Now this may be kind of cause for dismay, it's unfixable. But in some ways it's a relief, right? Because so many of us think we should be able to. We should be able to fix our circumstances, our bodies, our minds, right? Fix them, make them right. And this teaching says, no, it's unfixable. It's imperfect and unfixable. Another definition of samsara that I've heard is the urge to correct or to fix. So you put one, it's unfixable, with this urge, this compulsion to fix, what do you get? It's not a trick question. Dukkha, thank you. Stress, suffering, unfixable, and yet our constant efforts. You know what I'm talking about? To fix, to make it right or okay. And the reason we do this is because we don't understand the Dhamma, the truth of things, the way things actually are, three characteristics, etc. And the Buddha said, again, paraphrasing something like, and this was during his night of awakening where his um, Dhamma eye really opened, he said, I see countless beings wanting happiness and doing exactly what brings unhappiness. 
over and over again. Again, this is the human realm, the human condition, and this is the definition of ignorance or delusion, wanting happiness, yet doing what causes dukkha, unhappiness. I just read today, actually, this great um, interview in Tricycle magazine that Bonnie sent me. Bonnie's a great source for Dharma goodies. She's always got her eye out for good Dharma and shares it with people. And this was an interview called Black Coffee Buddhism because it's straight and strong uh, with Charles Johnson, who I'd heard about but hadn't read much of before. And he's this amazing Renaissance man. He's an African-American professor emeritus at the University of Washington. He's a philosopher, a novelist, an essayist, and a cartoonist, as well as many other things. As, including being a Zen practitioner and uh, teacher. So he's a very wise being, and this is what he has to say in, 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 in this regard. The Sangha, and he's mainly talking about the pra- community of practitioners, but it could be broader than that, is a collection of human beings situated in a very imperfect social world and in history. Human beings are flawed, frequently imperfect in their spiritual practice, and so they can slip into error or do things that violate their vows and ideals. Basically saying in another way, even though we have these good intentions through our delusion and the imperfection of ourselves in the world, we cause suffering. We cause suffering to ourselves, suffering to others. So the challenge is our practice is all about How do we reduce suffering and the potential to come to the end of suffering? So one way is to reduce ignorance, which is said to be the source or the cause of suffering. One way to explore one facet of ignorance is to look at our perceptions. And this is a very important concept in Buddhist teachings and practice. The Pali word is sanya. And it's one of the five aggregates. Aggregates of form, feeling, vedana, um, perception, sanya, mental formations, sankharas, and consciousness, citta. The Buddha said these are really important for us to be aware of and bring into our meditation because that, these are the places we tend to identify and cling to, create a sense of self around. So we might give a whole talk on, the, on all five. I don't want to talk on the other ones. But just to see, he often pointed to the importance of seeing the process of sanya. It's a mental factor at work. Because, he said, our perceptions, the way we see the world, are often distorted. And a big one, one of these big distortions we can have, even if we're not conscious of it, is that samsara, this world, should be able to be fixed, right? It should be different than it is. We should be able to do that. And we should be the ones that do it, right? We, or someone else, you know, sometimes we're pointing the finger at ourselves, sometimes we're pointing it out there, they should do it differently, it should be like this. And this it can lead to what I heard one person refer to as the dangerous addiction to self-righteous indignation. You seen any flourishing of that in the political field? It's kind of an epidemic, really, of 
finger wagging and pointing of, you know, things should be different, this should be like this. And when I talk about it in this way, I really want to be clear that this kind of fixing and this kind of self-righteous indignation is very different to responding to suffering out of wisdom and compassion. That's essential. That's what our practice develops, what the world needs, is wise responses to suffering out of wisdom and compassion. Fixing starts from the contracted belief that things are bad and wrong and that we, I, or someone else is to blame. That's the difference. Compassion just recognizes their suffering and has the urge to heal as best it can. Fixing comes from this judgmental kind of nature and again this kind of dividing into right and wrong. Um, And we think we know, right, the truth. The way we see things, our perceptions, they're the right ones. And everyone who disagrees is wrong, basically. And the, the challenge or the problem is our perceptions often have some basis in reality, but they're so deeply conditioned by ignorance that we can't really know, we can't discern, we can't track the reality that's there. So a huge part of the work of meditation is to clarify our perceptions and to be, be, bring our understanding more in alignment with the truth, the way things are, this deeper reality, actual experience. It's why we start with these very basic experiences of the body sitting, that we can know that, know that directly, and that's part of the training. Then we move on to these more challenging and and subtle experiences of the mind that I'm talking about tonight. When we develop mindfulness, the, 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 the gift, the potential of mindfulness is the clarity that it brings of knowing what's happening is this choice point. This is so key in our practice. We connect clearly and as accurately we can with what's happening and there's this moment of spaciousness or recognition, however you might experience it, that allows for choice and potentially a wise response. This is key. This is what we do this training for. As Pema Chodron says, a great Tibetan teacher, uh, she says in practicing peace in times of war, when you open yourself to the continually changing, impermanent, dynamic nature of your own being and and of reality, you increase your capacity to love and care about other people and your capacity to not be afraid. You're able to keep your eyes open, your heart open, and your mind open. And so you notice when you get caught up in prejudice, bias, and aggression. You develop an enthusiasm for no longer watering those negative seeds from now until the day you die. And you begin to think of your life as offering endless opportunities to start to do things differently, to start bringing in this wiser response. So that's a very grand view of the potential 
of this wise response, that mindfulness and being in touch with this direct reality in its nature. A more simple example of wise or appropriate response, or perhaps the lack thereof. Um, those of you that have been to Spirit Rock know it's a large piece of land, it's about 400 acres, a lot of it on a quite a steep hill that's a backdrop for the center. And we're bordered on one side by a similar piece of size sized piece of land um, that's farmed. There's the people there run ca- cattle on their land. And every now and then the cattle break through the fences and come onto Spirit Rock land. And I'm friendly with the farmer, the rancher who runs the cattle. His name is John. And I was speaking to him a little while ago and he knows Spirit Rock and kind of what we do. I mean, he would never come to anything we do. He doesn't meditate. Actually, his wife came once. She only came once, but she did come once. Um, So he kind of knows what we do. And we have very friendly relationships uh, with our neighbors. But he was telling me a story of a time that the cows got out up on the high hill. And so he was up there and came on the Spirit Rock land looking for cows. What he saw were people. And presumably these people were meditators because he said to them, have you seen any cows? (laughs) And because they misunderstood what noble silence means, looked at him blankly and walked on. By the third person, he was just laughing. It's like, have you seen any cows? This is not appropriate or wise response. If someone asks you, have you seen any cows? And you have or you haven't, you say yes or no. You know, that is not breaking noble silence. That's wise response. So again, we, we sometimes hold, and it's very dear that people hold these things um, so tightly, but it's too tight, you know. So I don't know if that will happen around here, but if someone, even if they say hello to you on the loop or something, say hello back. We don't want to be seen as weird in the, t- we already are, what am I saying? But not, not, let's not make it more weird than we already are. So appropriate response, that's a big part of what this training is all about. How do we live in the world and respond appropriately, compassionately? A big part, as I said, is really clarifying our perceptions, this mental factor of sanya. It literally means um, naming things. It's kind of out of memory, you know, knowing that something's a basket or a clock or a bell. I mean, like the, we know this as a bell, but if you showed it to someone in the town of Barry, they'd probably think it was something altogether, you know, it, not necessarily what people in the West think of as a bell. But the perception, our sanya, because we know that, we call it a bell what we start to see is our perceptions are very conditioned by our experiences, by our um, history, by all of the things that we've learned in the world. So it's conditioned and it's, it's, it shapes how we relate to the world. But as I keep pointing out, it's often distorted as the Talmud, that book of Jewish wisdom says, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are, meaning we see through our lens of conditioning and we think that's the way things are and we think that everyone else is seeing things the same way as we are and agreeing with us. And most of the time it's amazing how that is not 
the case. There may be some commonality. You know, we can, sometimes we can't even agree on what color something is. Have you ever, you know, what was that, the dress that destroyed the internet? You know, some people saw it as blue and gold and others, I forget even what it was, but that was all about perception, right? Um, So we have to really recognize that even as we're having certain experiences, seeing the world a certain way, we can't know that that's the absolute truth of the way things are. Joseph talked last night about absolute and relative, ultimate and relative kind of truths. And we can't know that someone else is having the same experience that we are. We have to have the humility to recognize that and to bring this functioning of mind into our conscious awareness, into our mindfulness. So the Buddha talked again and again, being mindful of perceptions, being mindful of concepts. Concepts are constructs that we make out of our field of awareness, our field of perception. One way we distort through perceptions is a particular kind of thinking called papancha. Joseph talked last night in a broad way about thoughts and thinking. There's a particular kind of thinking that the Buddha highlighted, and he gave it the term Papancha. I love that word. It's very evocative of its kind of, because what it means is a, um, uh, elaborate and exaggerated kind of thinking. It's, it's usually translated uh, as, as proliferation or diffusiveness or spreading out, diffusion. Um, it's, it's a kind of elaboration of thinking. And I used to think when I was first getting familiar with this term that Papancha was just a kind of daydreaming. And it was sort of harmless, you know, it's just these castles in the air that we would make up in our mind. Anyone doing any of that over these days? Yes, uh, we all do. And I thought it was just a waste of time, but kind of harmless, you know, like daydreaming. But the Buddha actually says, no, this is really something we need to pay attention to because papancha can have a big impact on our experience and can become very problematic. Tanasaru Bhikkhu, who's an um, American Buddhist scholar, monastic, lives in San Diego, he, when he talks about papancha, rather than proliferation, which is often translated as, he prefers objectification. You could also use to get a sense of this conceptualization or even reification, which means to make something solid or real, something that isn't to make it solid. Because what happens with papancha is we take these very ephemeral thoughts. If you've done any meditation on thoughts, as Joseph was talking about them last night, just blips of energy. But if you really believe them, start to solidify them, make them real, they create a feedback loop. And then we start reacting to this world in the mind we're creating, and it becomes a roller coaster of reactivity, exaggeration, and different emotions arising, all in the mind, but with this power or impact that's very 
visceral, you could say, a lot of emotions. And so papancha can really be seen as the cause of many difficult mind states and even external problems in the world. In the text, the Buddha says that the papancha is at the root of greed, of views, of pride, of ignorance, and attachment to becoming, all kinds of selfing that we might do. It's a source of quarreling, slander, and lying. Basically, all forms of conflict come out of this kind of reification of thoughts, this you know, line in the sand, I'm right and you're wrong. This, is, oh, this side of the line is okay, that side is not okay. All of the projections and identifications and beliefs that we might have have at their root this type of thinking. So it's really important to begin to look at this process because most of the time until we start to meditate, we're not encouraged to question our thoughts and our beliefs. We have them, therefore they're true. Or they're they're my, even if we say they're my truth, um, yes, there is a truth, but they're not the truth. So the Buddha begged to differ about the nature of what was a helpful relationship to thinking in these kinds of thoughts, that this kind of thinking gets us into trouble. It leads to difficult and unwholesome mind states. And particularly, papancha manifests through or as craving, tanha, which is the second noble truth, the source, cause of suffering is craving, tanha, conceit, or mana, all the forms of comparing, and um, uh, uh, self-view, and then views or ditti. Again, self-view, personality view, or all of the views that we can hold, that papancha is at the root of those. And it's entwined in both the causal aspect, but also how they manifest. We, papancha is what comes out of greed, of comparing, and of holding on to views. What's interesting is the three characteristics, the three vipassana insights that I spoke about at the very beginning actually are antidotes to those three manifestations of papancha. That the reflection or the insight into anicca or impermanence uproots mana or conceit because we see we can't sort of say this is, this is good, this is bad, that I'm good, you're not, because it's always changing. There's nothing there that's permanent. That the insight into dukkha, into suffering, into the unreliability of things, reduces tanha or craving. We see that's not, that's not a source of happiness. And the insight into anatta or self, the selfless nature, the not-self nature of things, uproots ditti, or pers- wrong view, because we see we're not in control in the way we thought we were. So unless we're aware and bring mindfulness to this kind of thinking, we usually end up in one of those three suffering problematic experiences of craving, conceit, or views. Craving and aversion are all of the ways the mind says, this is mine, I want this, I need this, or I don't want. You know, they're just, craving and aversion are just flip sides of the same movement of mind. I want, I don't want. 
in the wanting of something, we're not wanting something else, or we're not wanting it to go away. Or it ends up in comparing and judging, conceit. This is what I'm like. I'm good, good as, better than, worse than, all of that kind of comparing. The story we tell about ourselves, being good enough, not good enough. The Buddha says even saying we're the same as, kind of, I'm as good as anyone. That's also a form of conceit. And it's a form of suffering. Again, from this interview with Charles Johnson, he says, because most people live in samsara, this human realm, the realm of ignorance and delusion, they will experience the world in terms of their fragile ego. Now, the ego wants to maintain its existence. It identifies with the physical body, with its sense of race and gender, and with its endless desires. Furthermore, the ego is always measuring itself against others because such measuring is how it survives and avoids what it perceives to be dangerous or a threat to its continuation. It is forever wondering if it is inferior, equal, or superior to others. Always wondering, is mine bigger than yours? Obviously, it prefers to feel bigger, superior to, and better than others, smarter, more beautiful, wealthier, more gifted, more ethical, and so on. But that's a fragile basis, that constant comparing. And then lastly, it manifests in holding on to our views and opinions. I'm right, you're wrong, my beliefs are the truth. This is the the manifestation of Papancha, and as you can see, you probably get a sense, the cause of so much that causes conflict in the world. The best ally, the best antidote for working with and understanding this tendency of mind is mindfulness, is what we're doing here. Because once we start to understand this process, again in this training of the mind, looking directly into the mind, we can actually see this causal nature. There's actually a whole causal chain of how Papancha gets developed. I'm not going to go into that here, but we can understand it for ourselves. And then we can begin to not quite believe it as much, not quite feed it as much as we do when we're unconscious, when we're just giving way to it. So we start to see thoughts for what they actually are. Joseph spoke about that a lot last night, that thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. If we are unaware of them, if we believe them, if we're in their thrall, there's the world, solid, unchanging the way things are. But you turn and look at a thought, and we'll explore thought in our mindfulness practice in these coming days. It's lighter than a dandelion flower, lighter than a a whiff of fog, just disappears. And so we start to shift our relationship to thoughts and the thinking mind. We don't have to follow every thought, believe every thought, indulge in every thought. So the practice of mindfulness of thinking. We start naming the kind of thought, or a planning thought, or remembering, narrating, commenting, regret, rehearsing. 
Sometimes it's helpful to give a name to a whole construct we might be having. Going home, wanting to be home, seeing Melinda, whatever it might be that has a whole story behind it. We can use the mindfulness and this clarity of perception to actually break the spell, the trance of this kind of thinking. If you're really finding that there's a lot of this kind of thinking, this kind of obsessive, solidifying thinking, one of the practices, mindfulness practice, that can be really helpful is strong and continuous noting, where we just really note, whether using a mental label or clear noticing, um, what's happening, an in-breath, an out-breath, a sensation, a sound. And having the mind engaged in that way is another way we can um, break the trance of the papancha. But it's also important to recognize that with this kind of thinking, there nearly always is a strong mental state or emotion that comes with it. Because that's its very nature, this roller coaster of reactivity. So being aware of that, dropping the attention into the body, how does that feel, that anxiety or fear or excitement? This is really helpful. So we just start to really include this in our practice. It's so important. It's so seductive. It's hard at first to do that. We just jump on that train, as Joseph said, or the roller coaster of the ride. But as you get more familiar with it, and especially once you see where it leads, which is nowhere usually, or into some of these suffering states, there's really more incentive to begin to work with it. I know, you know, I'm very familiar with this kind of thinking, especially on retreat. There's a whole subsection of papancha called retreat papancha, which gets especially enlivened when we're nearing the end of any retreat, so we won't even talk about that here, but I'm sure you're still having it. You know, the thoughts of home, the images of wafting back, you know, somewhat saintly and uh, pure from your months of practice. I know one, one of my big ones, I think I've mentioned I'm from Australia. I left there in 1980, so been out of, haven't lived there for a long time. Didn't go back for many years. And in the last many years, started to go back more regularly. And uh, as my parents, especially if my parents got older, wanting to stay in touch with them. Um, and each time a trip would come up, you know, just as one does, my thoughts would start turning. Australia, the places I would go, and I'd start thinking about, you know, old friends that I might, because I've lost touch with so many people, I haven't lived there for so long, I'd, oh, what about that person? You know, maybe I could find them, get in touch with them, or I'll see so-and-so who I haven't seen for a number of years. And at first, it's always like the seeing of, right? But then it very quickly goes to the seeing of me, what will they think of me? And, you know, now you know, I've gotten into meditation. There were those years, and then I've become a meditation teacher. Will they notice, you know? And then there's the idealized me who I think they'll be seeing who's wiser, thinner, and more compassionate than the actual me that exists. And that's the one that's going to go to Australia, right? And, you know, again, float around with all my friends and family and be very impressive. What do they say? You're a prophet everywhere but in your own home. 
it's usually that because as we know the f- even though i go every time with the intention not to get irritated not to be abrupt not to be sarcastic and i'm much better than i was but family is the place that that does still tend to come out but having be- become aware of that pattern especially told that story a few times in talks i'm really aware now as the trip gets closer the mind will go there oh who will i see and what will they think of me? You know, what about me? As they, what, you know, the whole story always turns back to what about me? What will they think of me? But I just laugh at it now because I know the idea I have of that meeting and what, what they might think has nothing to do with what the reality will be like. So it just loses its allure. You know, the reason we like to do it is it's a fantasy realm, right? Where we're kind of somewhat in control of what's happening. And this can be interesting to see. I remember talking to a student about this and she said, yes, what I see is in my fantasy world, I'm in control. I'm moving the pieces around on the chessboard. I'm the puppet master in control. And it's so satisfying. But it's not real. Does the world work like that? No, not in the least. But So once you really see that about your fantasies, it really takes the allure out of them. It takes the beguiling nature. So start to look and see how many of your obsessive papancha type of thinking comes out of a wanting to be in control wanting to kind of be able to manipulate the situation that you're imagining. And if you really look at what's happening there, why we want that is because we don't feel in control, right? That's the reality, but we don't want to admit that. So there's fear and worry and agitation, some basic dissatisfaction with how things are or how things might be. What's dissatisfaction? another synonym for dukkha. That's just the nature of things. Once we start to train the mind, learn to understand the mind, as I said before, the mind can actually become more of a trusted ally. As James Barras, one of our friends and colleagues says, trust mindfulness can meet any moment. Trust mindfulness. We can't control what will happen, what other people's responses will be, but we can start to trust mindfulness. This is key. And out of that, we can learn to trust ourselves and our capacity to meet those situations, not having to pre-prepare and plan and manipulate to try and make it turn out a certain way. We trust ourselves to meet that moment. So we don't have to be right or manipulate or do all this planning and worrying. As another uh, colleague and and friend says, Brian Lesage, do I want to be right or do I want to be free? And sometimes it's as clear a choice as that. Do I want to hold on to know this is the way things are? I want things to be like this. It should be like this. Or do I want to be free? really to feel in the suffering of that holding on to that sense or illusion of control and of being right. It's dukkha. Someone gave me some really good relationship advice a while ago, which I try to put into practice, and it's very simple. 
Whoever is doing it is doing it right. And that means loading the dishwasher, doing the recycling, laundry, shopping, clean, whatever it is, you know, that we do in our household lives. How often does the mind go to, no, they should go like this. You know, and there are some things, admittedly, one does better than other people, but I... (laughs) And vice versa. But it's a practice. Whoever is doing it is doing it right. And to see the mind leaping to these judgments and, and ideas and surrendering, it leads to happiness. Trust me. I, I said that quote in another talk and someone came in and you said, no, 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 that can't be right. That's not the way to happiness. But believe me, it is. So some relationship advice for you. So other practices for papancha, really helpful, as I said before, bring the awareness into the body. The energy goes up and out, you know, this sense of um, uh, heat almost, energy up into the head and out into these fantasy worlds. So grounding back into the body, notice what the body feels like when you're in the throes of a papancha fantasy. Often the heart can start to pound a little, maybe your palms will sweat, Um, there can be a sense of contraction. I often notice a lot of contraction right here between the eyebrows and the eyes, just kind of the eyes clenching, the mouth, the jaw, you know, and this leaning forward. If you notice that's happening, check. You know, what are you thinking about? What's your relationship to your thoughts here, this constriction? And that can be a real signal for you. It's amazing, you know, we need such strong wake-up calls, but we're so lost in it. But if you feel this uncomfortableness in the body, what's happening? Make that a sign. And as I also said, need to do this with a lot of compassion. We have trained our minds to run wild in this way. It's not going to change just because now we come on retreat and we don't want that to happen. So just to recognize this is a tendency of mind and we want to bring a kind, compassionate response to it. Um, Here we go again. Oh, papancha, just papancha. And Ajahn Sumedho, who we've referenced, the American monk who brought um, the Dhamma of Ajahn Chah to the West, started many monasteries, he will often say, he's so wise, he'll say, you know, don't dismiss anger or fear or greed or whatever it is. He said, you have to know that. You have to know anger to know non-anger. So we have to use our mindfulness to understand that experience so we can know what it's like when it's not there, what it's like to be free of that. Same with papancha. We have to know papancha to know non papancha. So this sort of gentle approach. But as Joseph said last night, sometimes you do need the sword of wisdom. Just say, enough. Not now. I'm not going there. This is an endless path. You know, it's just a circular. It's like being in a washing machine with no rinse cycle. It's just going around with slight variations of the same theme. We really need to recognize this is not productive. And I'll have, you know, I might talk about this closer to the end, but, you know, we can have all of these imaginings from this early on in the retreat of what the end will be like, what will be like. 
I guarantee you it won't be like you imagine because you'll be a different person and the world will be a different place. Just necessarily, that's the nature of things. So we start to learn how to work more skillfully. This is the training of the mind through understanding the mind. And to see, you know, as we track this, there is a causal process here. There's just sort of garden variety thinking. And that can just come and go. It doesn't have to have much impact. But we see the kinds of thought that we hold on to, identify with, and make this type of um, thinking of papancha out of. But as we start to understand that, we see there are different possibilities, different options, and that non-papancha is possible. The Pali word is nipapancha, nipapancha. What's interesting is that's a synonym for nibbana. There's this beautiful text where the Buddha gives at least 33 synonyms for nibbana, the deathless, the peaceful, the sublime. One of them is nipapancha, the mind that's not full of this kind of thinking, this kind of proliferation, is the mind that's opened to the unconditioned, the mind of a Buddha, the mind of an arhant. The Buddha was often described as having a mind of nipapancha. That's how powerful an obstructive papancha is and how freeing being free of it is. And one aspect, as I said earlier, of this tendency of mind is this urge to fix or correct or obsess about things, to try to control things. Anyone notice that tendency? You know, the adjustment, the figuring out the schedule here, if only, the, if only they did this differently, the retreat, you know, would be better if they had different cushions or seats or chairs or whatever. That's such a strong tendency of mind. In some retreats, I teach often with um, Philip Moffat, who's a close friend and uh, co-guiding teacher at Spirit Rock, and he will often start retreats as well as taking the refuges and precepts. He invites people to formally take the vow to renounce judging, fixing, and comparing. And it's not as though just by doing that, that happens, but there's something powerful in clarifying your intention to notice those tendencies and to work with them skillfully and to see it is possible to give them up, to renounce judging, fixing, and comparing. But mindfulness is key to that because we have to know that they're happening, that that's what we're doing. We think we're just improving things, right? But we're judging, fixing, and comparing, and that always leads to suffering, always leads to separation. So using the mindfulness of the body, using mindfulness of the mind, these are important to recognize when that's happening. But some other good supports for this tendency to fix, obsess, and, and uh, judge uh, the Brahma Viharas. Metta, particularly, um, for one, it just gives the mind something positive to do, kind of interrupts that stream of thinking. But with its emphasis on well being, um, it actually interrupts that 
urge to make things be different. As I said the other day, the heart of metta is acceptance. The Brahma-vihara, the mental factor of equanimity that brings clarity and acceptance to experience. But one of the things I've seen is really helpful for this tendency to papancha, the tendency to fix, to correct, to control, is actually gratitude practice. Because these tendencies come out of dissatisfaction, that things aren't okay, things aren't all right, I'm not all right, the situation isn't all right. And out of that dissatisfaction, the mind moves into craving or aversion, wanting things to be different. This is so central. Gratitude practice is a wonderful antidote to the dissatisfaction that causes a papancha kind of thinking, our tendency to want to fix or correct. And there's a, a guy, Robert Emmons, you may have heard of him. He's a professor at UC Davis. He's kind of the modern gratitude guru. He's written books on it, done studies, there's lots of interviews and things online from him, because he's really seen the power of this quality of heart of gratitude. And his definition of gratitude has two components. This is from him. First, it's an affirmation of goodness. We affirm that there are good things in the world, gifts and benefits we've received. This doesn't mean that life is perfect. As I said, it's imperfect. It doesn't ignore complaints or burdens and hassles. But when we look at life as a whole, gratitude encourages us to identify some amount of goodness in our life. The second part of gratitude is figuring out where that goodness comes from. We recognize the source of this goodness as being outside of ourselves. It doesn't stem from anything we necessarily did ourselves in which we might take pride. We can appreciate positive traits in ourselves, but I think true gratitude involves a humble dependence on others. We acknowledge that other people, even higher powers, if you're of a spiritual mindset, gave us many gifts, big and small, to help us achieve the goodness we're experiencing in our lives. So gratitude is a balance as an antidote to this sense of dissatisfaction that it is at the heart of the urge to fix or correct. And many of you have mentioned gratitude in the interviews. Gratitude in being able to come and practice, in being supported here in the beautiful ways we are by the staff, by the cooks, by the facility, by the teachings. It's an amazing opportunity to let the heart open to that, to balance this tendency to find fault, to want to fix, to make problems, to think always about what's wrong. And Roger Emmons says that gratitude has these amazing benefits. You get a stronger immune system, you're less bothered by aches and pains, you sleep longer and feel more refreshed, you have higher levels of positive emotions, more alert, alive and awake, more joy and pleasure, more optimism and happiness. Sounds wonderful, right? More helpful, generous and compassionate, more forgiving, all from being grateful for what we have. It's a wonderful antidote to this mind that says, not enough, not good enough. And so we use the positive um, 
expressions of the heart, of metta, of compassion, of gratitude, of kindness, to balance this tendency and use the mindfulness to explore the nature of the mind itself. As I said at the beginning, this practice is a training of the mind. What's amazing is that it's possible. What's radical is that we can do it. And this is the path that the Buddha laid out for us, this training of the mind to lead to deeper states of contentment and wisdom and compassion, where the mind isn't lost in papancha and the urge to fix or correct, but has this basic sense of well-being and equanimity at its core. I just want to finish with the words of Ajahn Chah talking about this mind. He says, in truth, there is nothing really wrong with the mind. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrows, but the mind's true nature is none of those things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. Really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. Just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So let's just sit and let the words settle into silence.
Again, thank you for your attention. It's a bit over half an hour now for walking and then last sitting of the day with chanting. It's always a a lovely way to end the day, formal sessions of practice. And sometimes in the early days you might feel tired, it just seems impossible that you might make it to that nine o'clock sitting. But as you settle in, you notice that the energy does pick up. So maybe tonight's the night that you can come and join the chanting.